0: Welcome to CMO Confidential, the podcast that takes you inside the drama, decisions, and choices that go with being the head of marketing. Hosted by five-time CMO, Mike Linton.
1: Welcome marketers, advertisers, and those who love them to Chief Marketing Officer Confidential. CMO Confidential is a program that takes you inside the drama, the decisions, and the politics that go with being the head of marketing at any company in what is one of the most scrutinized jobs in the executive suite. I'm Mike Linton, the former chief marketing officer of Best Buy, eBay, Farmers Insurance, and Ancestry.com here today with my guest, Brian Voss. Today's topic, an operations-driven CEO dishes on how he views marketing. Welcome, Brian.
2: Thank you, Mike. Good to see you again. It's good to see you sitting still in a chair for a change. I'm
1: doing my best to stay still. As you know, that's difficult for me. Uh, So, to intro Brian. Brian Voss knows wine. After graduating from Purdue with his MBA, he worked 12 years at Gallo, where he ran the supply chain. He then went to the wine group, where he worked almost 20 years, the last eight as CEO. For those of you that don't know the company, TWG, the wine group, is privately held, and it's one of the largest wine companies in the world. It sells an awful lot of wine, including Franzia, Cupcake, Kincanon, and Benzinger. And Brian took over as CEO during a challenging period, and he turned the company around. He's now the chairman of Chateau Saint-Michel and has had a great seat to watch both management and marketing in industry where marketing may or may not matter, depending on the company and the brand. And I will say this, Brian, this entire introduction of you is making me very, very thirsty. So why don't you start by giving us just a quick overview of the complexity of the wine business and
2: how it all comes together? Well, the good news is you're thirsty. There's plenty of excuse for you to pick from. Uh, <laughs> this, every, every, every business has its unique challenges, but I like to think the wine is just one of the most complex and kind of goofed up ones around. Uh, as you might expect, there's the, the regulatory environment around Alcoholic beverages is just crazy. Um, you've got rules that vary by state, courtesy of the 21st amendment and prohibition. And you've got an environment where, uh, I don't know there's another category like it in terms of skew explosion and proliferation. I mean, just here's, here's some stats for you. In the, in the US, there's over 10,000 wineries, over 6,000 in California. There's somewhere, I don't know, north of 30,000 different brands of wine and over well over 100,000 SKUs. The typical, if you're familiar with a Total Wine & More, uh, which is a Al- Bev Alk store, big retail footprint, the average store there carries 8,000 different wine SKUs, plus, 8,000 plus. So when you talk about trying to make a difference in a consumer's choice and a consumer's decision patterns, and you have innumerable options that they have to consider and that you have to outcompete each time. It is just uh, a foreboding and it's really difficult to like this Mike actually hold marketing accountable for those kinds of, uh, for, to, to to basically succeed in that kind of an environment. Well, we're gonna write marketing in this story in a minute, but I, I think, well, Brian I, I
1: I was lucky enough to, to work at the, or be on the board of the wine group and Brian had to put up with me for Gosh, it is. It's like almost eight years. Uh, but I, I think one of the things that I would emphasize what Brian, what Brian said is you, you, you're talking about hundreds, a hundred thousand SKUs, tons of brands, and then serious complexity in the distribution and sales channel where every state is basically has a different regulation. So marketing is fitting in kind of where it can here. Um and it depends on the company and the brand and the timing for marketing but brian i'd, I'd love you to write marketing into the story from your seat as you saw it because you were at gallo which is a a pretty serious marketing company in the wine group which is is, is much uh, is driven a lot by distribution and, and sales
2: yeah and and the distribution environment is just so complex and you've got this three-tier this mandated three-tier distribution systems you got supplier a forced distributor who has to be resident in each state and then your big retail chains. And there's this, you know, complicated mesh that has to go together. So I used to, you know, Mike was on my board. He was my favorite board member, by the way. I'm not, We'd I'm not love having you on this show, Brian. Yeah, right. uh, which is surprising because he was a marketing person yeah. um, because every day I would walk from my car to my office and I would say heads, I'm gonna give marketing a chance today. Tails, I'm just gonna say no to whatever they ask. And that, that worked pretty good by and large. But kidding aside, uh, the wine category in general has a history when it comes to marketing. And it's clear that some marketing campaigns were so instrumental in the success of brands. You think back in my gala days, you had uh, Bartles and James in the wine cooler category and Seagram's, and you had Frank and Ed for Bartles and James. And if you recall, um, Bruce Willis playing his harmonica for Seagram, right? And those those traditional media weighted campaigns were just so important. Now you got a whole new world, right? You got this guerrilla street marketing influencer focused stuff like Gallo's barefoot campaign have driven that thing through the roof. But really for every success, there's untold failures and all too often, it's hard to figure out what works, why it worked, even if you have data and you're looking back on it. Um, The category, Mike, you may have heard me say this before, but we think the wine category, when we try to look for something comparable, especially in the consumer space, where we end up is a greeting card aisle. So you go to the store to buy a Chardonnay and you're not a wine geek or you're not loyal to something. It's kind of like walking in there to get your mom a birthday card. You go to the birthday section and you go to the mom section and then you start looking. And it's very similar in the wine space. It's just how do you how do you set yourself apart when it just looks like a greeting card now. So, so how do you, how, to, to all the marketers
1: and advertising uh, folks listening to the, the podcast here, how do you think about marketing in this space? Like, when do you know when it works? When do you know when it doesn't? And how do you actually do a fair test in this business? Um, like, 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 what would you tell marketers in complex categories uh like this like how how do you even think about marketing
2: well i mean you got to have thick skin if you're a marketer because you're going to be told when when you've actually done something that's made that's moved the needle you're probably not going to get the credit and when it doesn't work you're going to get the blame uh because it's just so complex i mean thinking about it you go to the you go to the greeting card aisle okay how am i going to get you to win pick my card up well you know in the wine space you've got to it's not your traditional marketing it's, it's a, you have to run the whole gamut of marketing activities. You have to go through promotional activity. What gets you displayed to set you apart from somebody else? You don't think end dial displays on top of the cheese, whatever. Um, And you're, you're trying to, you're trying to use every bit of the resources at your disposal to push the right buttons and build a masterpiece, if you will, of all the different marketing activities. And, and then when it does work, you're not really sure what made it work. Sometimes you get lucky. um, But Generally, I mean, you're trying to find a way for your product to win that consumer decision more often than everybody else. And yet you're, you're not competing with three guys, you're competing with 60, just in the Chardonnay section. So, so, so when this is happening, there's, there's the point of sale, which
1: obviously has a huge amount of power, because if you can't win the point of sale, you can't win. Uh, because when people arrive, unless they're ordering directly from the company you have to win at the point of sale how does the marketer yes. play in this or or you have to get a good tasting at a restaurant like off premise where where you're, you know you're you're yes. getting a, you know your brand is getting sampled and and you can push it out there how as a marketer is when you've watched a lot of marketers in the space how do you do a good job interfacing with the other functions and and still keeping the consumer at the center of this
2: well, I, I think marketing has has definitely evolved from the days of the traditional media to this whole palette of activities. And so I think it's a marketer's responsibility to know the DNA of their brand and then to make sure that as they keep that in mind, they go ahead and work with all the, you know, their, most of their work is going to be with the distribution side and the sales side of the house. But they also have to look back on ops and, and manufacturing and make sure that they get the products they need, which, you know, this isn't... An, this isn't like making cookies from a recipe. Every year is different. Grapes come in different times. They taste different. And so marketing's constantly been thrown curveballs because they, they, can't, they don't always know what they're going to get, yet they have to continue to produce results or drive things. Sales is probably their biggest customer in terms of um, the person who expects the most out of marketing and gives them the least amount of love. Let's put it that way. And, and they, they really want... Sales wants to say, "Hey, you deliver the consumer to me. I'll sell the product, but you deliver the consumer who wants to go pick up my bottle of wine and that's typically um, the biggest challenge for the marketing people and look they if you have a strong brand growing or stable, there's a base level amount of marketing you have to spend otherwise and, and you have to you have to create a story around why you're spending that money because if you don't spend that money and you can't tell that story, you're sending a message to your retailer and your distributor that you don't care that much. Yeah. So the goal for you is to create a story about what you spend. Yes, you want it to be effective, but that's no there's no guarantee on that. You have to, in the meantime, make sure the story tells your the, the customers you have between you and your real customer, the consumer, that you care and they should care and help you. So you mentioned
1: like, the results, how as a marketer, if you're in a category where these results are hard to measure because you have so many differences in the game, how, what kind of measures moved you as a CEO that the marketer showed up with and what measures didn't matter to you or what stories that marketers told you didn't work for you? Oh boy, uh, there was a lot of them that didn't work. <laughs> All right. Well, well, I'm gonna come. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Follow, I'm gonna. I'm gonna jump this question. And say, all right. Tell our listeners what operations and supply chain folks really think about marketers and ad agencies. Don't hold back, and then we'll go to the measures.
2: Okay. Well, look, I, I um, I would say that from an operations supply chain, I spent most of my life there, so I would say that the kind of things that they would respond to you with are. Marketing uses selective data to support their opinions versus taking the data and using it to identify and test opportunities, ideas. You know, it's just backwards. You know, and and okay, we've seen that. I think um, they would also say, look, uh, marketing tends to have a limited understanding of the downstream complexity that their decisions create. They don't they don't care enough about that, or they don't understand it. Um, there's always that they take operations for granted, right? They assume everything's just going to show up on time and when they need it, they don't communicate well, they don't plan, they build in realistic timelines, all those things you've heard before. Um, But the operations people would then say that that then corners get cut to meet timelines and execution becomes suboptimal. Um, I think sometimes they would probably in, in bad situations or when things are in a a more cantankerous kind of environment, you would get operations saying that they're not considered a partner in the development phase. Um, They feel like they should be involved in the innovation side up front, not as an afterthought, like, hey, let me throw this over the transom and you go make it. Um, Let's see, what else? Too many priorities. If If everything's a priority, nothing's a priority. So maybe figure out, you know, what really matters. Um, and I guess on the flip side, Mike, sometimes I, I think operations might say, marketing spends too much time analyzing trends and they miss an opportunity. Yeah. You know, yeah. let's be thoughtful, take a risk and let's learn and get in and out quickly if we have to. But if we wait too long, somebody else takes the lead. So, he, he, so here's the story that I think you're saying, which is, this
1: is a super complex business where all the parts have to work together. If the marketer wants to play in that space, they have to understand the whole thing, not just the marketing part, because the marketing part isn't gonna be enough to, to win the game, except in rare circumstances. And, and we'll talk about Cupcake maybe maybe in a little bit.
2: Um, how?
1: Yeah, I, yeah, oh, go ahead.
2: Hey, I'll give you a great example. You just triggered my head, a, a great example. Uh, A few years ago when I was still working, we we had a night, there was an idea, uh, wine in cans and um, marketing jumped on it and we thought it could be a hot new idea. And so we took this brand called Flip Flop and we put it in cans. Well, we waffled on the can size because there were some legal issues around that. We didn't have to, we rushed, so we didn't have time to test the coating in the cans and what wine did with them. We didn't get to test how long the wine shelf life was in the cans. We had problems with can sourcing because we're not big enough compared to the beer guys. Uh, we expedited our timeline, didn't give the cost structure good. You can, you can see what's happened? It was a disaster. We ended up with product <laughs> that got old and didn't taste good. Uh, so here was the next big thing. We didn't want to miss out, but we didn't do our homework and the consumer got a crappy experience. And the next thing you know, it's DOA. So you flip-flopped on that idea. I couldn't resist that problem. <laughs> um. <laughs> So,
1: so you're sitting there at, in the COC in what is a super complicated business. You get all these asks from the various functions and you have to coordinate it all. How do you decide what to do there and how it can the marketer be the most helpful to you? We'll do a hall of fame goods and a hall of fame bads in terms of when the marketer can be the most helpful to a complicated system and the least helpful. And I'm looking for kind of, Lessons for our listeners here of of things to do if they're in a really complicated, very integrated business like wine.
2: Uh, Yeah. So, look, I think I look at marketing a little bit um, in the wine business in a complex category like that as kind of the governor on an engine because they're the make work department. They're not not the marketing department. They're the make work department because whatever they do creates, amplifies as it goes out, ripples out and creates work for winemakers and production and engineers and salespeople and everybody. And so if we can't keep them kind of focused and with good priorities, they will drive costs up and things will get very complex and messy. So I always looked at uh, the amount of the size of the marketing department, the amount of money they were allocated in the budgets as a way to govern and manage the complexity of, of the organization. And so really, when the when the marketing department was very focused and, and could set priorities on things that were important, uh, whether they be new, innovative things or supporting existing brands or whatever, that's when, you know, the flywheel started kicking in and the whole organization got behind the ideas there was less um, there was less unnecessary complexity and loss of focus and it was really because again the marketing department was the make work department was very thoughtful and streamlined in where they went after things does that make sense that. it does and i, I think make work is, is <laughs> a
1: bunch of our listeners are going to love that but i i do think the the make work thing in particular that is if I'm getting this wrong, stop me, where in the wine business, if you're a marketer and you're going to launch a brand, all the varietals are going to come in there, all the distribution through 50 states, all the different SKUs, and you're going to have to manage all the all the actual middlemen that stock this for you. So the complexity of a single brand launch has per. Permutate uh, thousands of permutations essentially through the company. Um, and, and what you're saying is, the mar- if the marketer's not aware of that, that's going to be a problem that's going to cost the company money and probably the
2: marketer his or her good standing over time, right? Yeah. And, and to go back to the complexity of the industry, uh, something I didn't say earlier, a huge percentage of the overall growth in the industry every year is from new products. So if you want to, I mean, this, the product life cycle in wine, unless you're lucky and you get one of these long-standing Kendall Jackson's cupcakes or whatever, it's just quick, right? You're just cycling through, and so you're constantly looking for the next big thing, and you're constantly innovating. So there's constantly new stuff coming out, and and so that innovation cycle, um, it has to be driven by marketing. I mean, that function is so important. And yet if, and when you ask them to do, you're asking them to be creative and do stuff. And stuff usually costs money and yep. organizational resources. So figuring out what stuff is gonna pay out and add value and what stuff isn't, that, that person who can do that, that marketing group that can do that is invaluable. So here's a, here's a
1: question, you, um, you come in as CEO, and now you have all these marketing people that were peers or kind of peers, I guess, and now they work for you. Tell me what goes through your head as a CEO and how the marketer should best like, relate to you when you get this job. Like, what's the right way to do it as a marketer?
2: Well, I hope they get a better CEO than me because I wasn't very friendly to marketing. But uh, now I, I think the first time I had my hands on a marketing department, it was when I ran one of our two business units at the wine group. And, and the first one I had was the Velocity business unit. It was this massive brands, million case plus, every one of them, things like Franzia, you know, and on the low end of the pricing segment. So the marketing spend was heavily tactical. So it was like it was like a marketing for beginners for me. It was pretty simple. You're just trying and by to tactical. You
1: mean you mean this is uh, like promotional sales, like you dollar
2: off, Yeah. Coupons, all that. Yeah not on the, I would say not on the high end of creative, much more, you know, blocking and tackling. Yeah. So it's pretty easy for, get, for me to get my hands around it. It was pretty easy to see who just got stuff done. I mean, that's what, it wasn't as much, oh, wow, they're creative thinkers and they got great new ideas, things like that. Well, after a couple of mo- years, I moved over to the other business unit, which was named underdog. And it was to grow, it was to manage our fast growing uh, premium category, which included things like cupcake and here the marketing was much bigger part of the equation. I mean, and, and way less um, tactical, much more innovative, and you had to be very creative. And look, I, I struggled to understand what effectiveness looked like there. And the data was less clear, right? Because
1: you had data,
2: when you're doing, when you're doing pretty much
1: what I call tactical or promotional marketing, even with the three-tier system, you can actually see cause effect in a short period of time. If yeah, I if I'm doing brand building in wine, even a even a even a hot brand, unless you get super lucky, that's going to take a little bit of time to develop. And the, the math is really a
2: little more speculative, right? I would say, I mean, I'm an analytical guy, but I would say a lot speculative. And even looking back, you can't you you can think you figured it out, but you didn't. I mean, yes, you're right. In in the tactical, you know, spending area. You, do, you get a promotion in a big retailer, you see a bump, boom, done, right? Right. You run, you run media or you run, you know, you spend a ton of money with influencers on Cupcake. Measuring that was so difficult. And I, I think that was really hard for me. I learned, and this is where I think the marketing people on the other side of this, I learned to ask a ton of questions and, and it made them a little uncomfortable at times. And the good people, the good marketers for me, Took that in the spirit intended is like, I'm trying to make you uncomfortable so that we wrestle with this together. And, And my goal was to get them to walk around the desk 360 degrees before settling in on an idea they'd already fallen in love with way too prematurely. Okay. You got a great idea. I hope it's still a great idea, but please walk with me all the way around and look at this from everybody's perspective. And if it's still a great idea, I'm with you.
1: Well, I I do think there's probably a a lesson here for our listeners, which is the idea has to be able to be executed across a complex array of functions to work. And as CEO, you're seeing that, especially given where you're coming from, and figuring out what the CEO needs to understand the idea is super important. And then getting the CEO as an ally to help you think it through versus as someone you sell to, also important. Hey let's talk about cupcake cuz I think when that came out what in 2008 it it became a million case brand and I think it was wine of the year by one of the big wine magazines was was that marketing was that dis- was that luck what what was that tell us that and cuz you're you're sitting I think was that was were you I that might have been your first year or second some early in your CEO tenure so tell us tell us about this
2: Yeah it 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 kicked off while I was a COO So it got its start there. I'll share a little bit about that because that wasn't necessarily as you would think either. But look, uh, in all candor, I thought it was stupid to name a wine after a piece of cake, a hard to eat piece of cake at that, you know? So I can't take any credit and say anything but luck. Um, But I didn't have anything really personally to do with, you know, getting it out and so forth. Cupcake's one of those brand stories we like to say is sprinkled with fairy dust. Uh, one of the former board members you and I work with, Ken Lizer, yeah. ex head of sales, he made a good point about brands like Cupcake. He says if, if during your career you're lucky enough to, f- to get to work with one of these, you call it call it good fortune because not everybody gets to play with one of these. And so I, I definitely feel very lucky to have been involved. That said, again, I wasn't in charge, so I can't take any credit. The story is not one of clear commitment to Cupcake right out of the gate. So we had two brand innovation concepts at the time. One was called Swirling Dervish, one was called Cupcake. We decided after testing and doing concept testing and doing all the things you do in marketing that that Swirling Dervish was a better idea and we rolled it out nationally. And clearly it was a huge success because you see it all the time now. (laughs) Um, Meanwhile, Cupcake number two was just farmed out as a private label over to Cost Plus. And again, you've never heard of Swirling Dervis, so all you need to know about that concept. Cupcake immediately took off in Cost Plus. We quickly expanded the offerings, rolled it out of Cost Plus everywhere. Three million case brand in a couple of years. So marketing or luck, it's a bit of both, Mike, it's, which is usually the case of these types of brands. Um, so, and but I'm going to go back to where you said innovation matters in the
1: category. And if you don't innovate, you're not going to grow. And that there's a lot of new brands that come out every year. How do you, as CEO or CMO, manage the amount of tests you put out? And how do you know when to pull them back when they're they're working or not working, especially in a category like this where the data is less clear?
2: Yeah. And I think the other thing that you got to keep in mind is most of these brands that we're talking about are what we call concept brands. They're like cupcake. They're not rooted in any place or history or person. So, so they are. They're made up. They're, they're so raw ideas. ideas. Yeah, they're raw ideas followed by yeah. wine. Yeah, it's got to be a compelling concept that resonate resonates with consumers. You know, pretty quickly, and 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 t- it typically takes something extra, whether it's the magic marketing concept, a lucky influencer post, or something you didn't plan on. So, really, you have to put that governor in place because you know, marketing can spin out of control a little bit in terms of all the innovation concepts they come up with. So, we had kind of a funnel mechanism with various stage gates where we just kept winnowing down, okay, how many we got? And what we tried to do was say that, you know, we had a three-year cycle and, you know, we might have 10 new ideas, but that typically meant at least 10 other ideas were being you know, crossed off the list and thrown out right. of the market. We just tried to keep it in a manageable uh, scope because we ha- we we wanted to. We had a saying at the time. Oh, was it fa- fast fail forward or something? I didn't. I didn't really get it. But basically, it was like, okay, try it quick. Be quick to pull the plug and move on. There's probably a couple times we pulled the plug too quick, um, but. The risk of not pulling the plug and having just all these distractions around while you're really looking for something that moves the needle, you really got to have some discipline around that. um, Because you you can end up with lots of things that don't pass what I used to call, uh, marketing people hated this, but I called it the why bother test. They got used to hearing me say, why bother? And and you really have to make sure you have the discipline to make sure everything you do passes the why bother hurdle. Okay, I
1: like that. So you've had a bunch of uh, marketing folks on your boards at various times. Uh, what advice would you give CEOs and boards for selecting the right marketers to be on their board?
2: Oh well, I'm going to use you as, I guess, the uh, the benchmark, right? So, you
1: love having you on this show, Brian.
2: First and foremost, they need to be able to sit in a boardroom chair and effortlessly spin around in circles while formulating brilliant insights and questions. How's that? Sound familiar? No, but okay. <laughs> Kidding aside. Look, I, um, I'd look for someone who has successfully led marketing work, not just spent the money, because there's a lot of people who have been at big marketing you know, organizations and spent the money, but delivered good results on multiple occasions And preferably with different approaches, not just running the same play over and over again. Uh, So they bring perspective. and it makes them legit in the mind there. Um, And then I guess I would consider their approach. I mean, can they add value by asking thoughtful and valuable questions? And and, and I really wouldn't want somebody who tries to tell the internal marketing team how to do their job. I mean, marketing. Strategies, tactics are tricky and are usually pretty industry specific. So getting the type of advice that leverages your internal team and organization is really important. Uh, if you want somebody to tell you what to do, or then go get some marketing consultants and or, you know, change out your marketing department because I don't think you need to add an advisor to uh, you know have a Monday morning quarterback or, or to actually compete with your marketing team. You want them to be additive. And you want it to be, I mean, there's a little bit of a, a rub, but at the same time, I want the mark. I want my head of marketing to look at the the board member who's a marketing person is somebody who challenges them in a good way and makes them think and that kind of thing. But doesn't okay. do their job. So yeah, yeah. And, and isn't isn't trying to make them look bad or, or whatever. Does that make sense?
1: Yes, that you're not a check mark. You're you're an additive thinker, but you're not there to operate. My my rule is you're not an operator. So yeah. So as we run to the end of our show here, the last question is either any funny marketing story you want to tell or practical advice you'd give our listeners that we haven't talked about or both last question yours to take as you
2: wish. Oh, okay. Well, I'll do a funny story and then something a little more takeaway that I think is fun for the industry. Funny story is cupcake. We just talked about it, right? Lucky or skill. Some of both. It was awesome. Right. But we decided that we were really smart and should extend that brand into spirits because you know uh, we were really smart. Uh, we were the definition of hubris at this juncture in, in our life cycle. So we took Cupcake, but not only Cupcake, we took Kincannon, made Irish whiskey. We took Big House, made a bourbon. We let the general manager at the time, that was me, come up with it, our tequila brand. And we decided to launch a big fan fair. Ignoring the fact that the 800 pound gorilla in the spirits world, We typically drop 50 million on a new product launch. We tried to do it on a shoestring. And uh, we thought we were smarter. And uh, we thought cupcake consumers would naturally just leave the wine aisle, walk over to the vodka section and look for chocolate vodka or ginger snap vodka. Because that that housewife who was our target consumer for Cupcake Chardonnay, she was really into chocolate vodka. Well, (laughs) needless to say, it was an epic fail. Uh, fell flat on its face, left me with 300,000 cases of inventory to clean up. It was a bad idea, bad timing. I don't know. But uh, learned a I learned a valuable lesson. Organization learned a valuable lesson. Classic hubris. Um, when you're overconfident, um, hey, don't get too comfortable and confident. I am just telling you, cupcake tequila sounds awful. So, all right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Practical advice. So uh, this goes back to my gala days. I'm in a meeting one time with... Uh, Ernest Gallo, the king of all marketing, right? A legend, uh, and there's a big room of people talking Gallo of Sonoma at the time. He was, he was fixated on having, he was tired of being king of the low end and he wanted to have a high-end product and they were making fantastic wines at Gallo of Sonoma. And it was his legacy and he poured money in and he was frustrated with the results. So he asked the marketing VP why it wasn't working compared to all the competitive targets he admired. And the response was that, hey, these other brands had heritage and tradition, uh, given that they'd been rooted in the North Coast and Sonoma with their brands for 20 plus years, building their reputation. And some sales executive quickly responded to the marketing VP says, well, how do we create heritage and tradition for this? And Ernest kind of chuckled underneath his breath. And then he said, you don't create heritage and tradition. That takes time and patience. And to me, that was one of the all time great marketers, you know, admitting, that there's some things that marketing can't do or create, and and you really need a solid foundation to which you apply marketing and your marketing magic, or your efforts are usually gonna underachieve what your expectations are, because you're trying to create something out of nothing.
1: Thank you. A great story to end on. Thank you, Brian. And thanks to everyone for listening to CMO Confidential. Look for more of our shows on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple, and YouTube which include what private equity really thinks about marketing, why the short shelf life of CMO's parts one and two, and a top business professor discusses the CMO role and tenure. Hey, all you marketers, be safe out there. This is Mike Linton signing off for CMO Confidential. Thank you, Brian. You're welcome.
0: This episode of CMO Confidential is produced and sponsored by AdCom. One of the premier integrated marketing and advertising agencies, Adcom works with mid-market companies to create measurable returns. With 30 plus years experience, Adcom partners to lead innovative strategy, creative, media, and analytics for growth-oriented brands that want to differentiate themselves in a crowded field. Working in B2B, B2C, healthcare, financial services, transportation, building products, and consumer goods, adcom leverages unique internal and external insights to create dynamic and lasting brands ready to maximize their market position for more information visit us at engageadcom.com great careers are forged out of great relationships
2: your success whatever your field relies and thrives on the support and
0: insights of others I'm Andy LaPata, an author and speaker on the power of professional relationships. In the Connected Leadership podcast, I have the privilege of interviewing people from around the world to understand the relationships that have made a
2: difference on their journey and how their insights can help you. From Nobel Prize winners to Olympians, from NASA astronauts to peace campaigners, my guests have shared some captivating moments from their lives and careers. Combined with experts from leading universities, cutting-edge authors and giants of business, the
0: Connected Leadership podcast aims to inspire, educate and entertain. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called